Well, good morning, men. I uh, would like to begin this morning by saying a brief word of thanks to Pastor Johnny, Pastor Aaron, and Pastor Gary for hosting our conference this morning. I'm sure you'll agree with me that all men need other men to teach them about what being a man in Christ means in today's world where definitions of gender and identities are under attack. But before we dive into God's word, will you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we've just had to offer you all the glory and the honor and the worship that is due to you, a thrice holy God. And Lord, we would just pray for the next little while, Lord, this, this day that you've given us, that we would be solely focused on you. God, I pray that you'd remove every distraction. I know that every single man here has got things on his heart, things on his mind. But Lord, we are living in a world that is bereft of male leadership. God, and, and there's so many different definitions of what that is. Some of it's toxic, some of it's ungodly. And yet you offer us the example of Christ. So Father, for the next few moments, let us look at your word. We ask that you would speak to us, Lord, and that we would not waste this opportunity, but we would be transformed by the preaching of your word that we would not be the same men that we were when we walked in this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the talk that was assigned to me was stringless repentance. And I'm just going to confess to you, men, that I didn't know if it was supposed to be like a talk or a lecture or a sermon. So I'm just going to slam all those three together and, and hold on, you know, and see what happens. So... Um, if you're wondering what I'm going to do, I'm going to contrast the actions of King David with the actions of a certain Levite in the book of Judges, or really all the men in Judges. And so to get started this morning, I want to ask a question. Since my talk is stringless repentance, what exactly is repentance anyway? You know, many theologians over the span of Christian history have given some excellent definitions. I would encourage you all to look at people like Wayne Grudem and John Piper. There's fantastic resources out there. But one of the best that was ever given, in my opinion, was by that prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he defined repentance this way when he stated, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character, which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. That's strong, man. And so as I looked at that definition, I said, okay, so it's a change of mind. It's a change of our affections, whereby we hate sin and love God more than our sin, right? But there is a corollary to the idea of repentance, right? If a man's going to repent, then he must first be confronted by the truth that he is a sinner by nature and by will. However, let me explain a little bit more about this. Okay, because of the way I read Romans 1, I believe God, excuse me, I believe everyone knows in their hearts that they are in rebellion against a holy God. Romans chapter 1, right, verses 18 through 22 states this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, here's the hammer, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. I can't help but resistance is futile. There's the Borg right there. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So if y'all let me summarize that chunk of the scripture. God has clearly revealed himself to humanity, but instead of repenting and worshiping, all of us have believed a lie and decided to worship idols instead of the God of the Bible. That's the state of every man's soul in this room. Okay? And Paul seems to indicate here that we are stupid because of sin, that our, our minds are messed up, that we've become sinful and foolish in our thinking and and personally, I think this is the Apostle Paul's way of saying that we all have a little bit of Percy Wetmore inside of us. Y'all are probably looking at me like, who in the world is that? Now, I'm a movies guy, so I relate everything to movies. But if you remember, there's an old film with Tom Hanks called The Green Mile. 
right? That is focused on a group of men that were prison guards over death row during the Great Depression. And uh, Percy is shown to be one of those guards. He's an exceptionally cruel man to these different prisoners, but there's no scene worse in the film than when they're preparing to execute a prisoner on death row, and though he knew better, though he'd been trained better, he decided not to soak the sponge with water as a part of an electric execution, as sending someone to the electric chair, right? And because of his decision, that prisoner suffers this horrific death, and his co-workers make him watch because he knew better than what he was doing. And after they're kind of sitting down with him after everything is over, his excuse was, I didn't know the sponge was supposed to be wet. He gave an excuse. It's an out-and-out lie. He knew what he was supposed to do. He just was trying to get out of being in trouble. You might be thinking, well, Kirby, I, I know I'm wicked and all that. I get that Romans 1 stuff that you're saying to me, but I've never done anything that gruesome. And the truth is, yes, we have. In fact, we've done worse. By sinning and rebelling against God, we have offended a holy God. And if you're a believer, then by our lack of repentance, we have made excuses and we've cheapened the sacrifice of Jesus. And I don't want that for any of us today. So because of that, I want us to briefly look at God's word, see what repentance is, what it's not, and what we need to do. So from these two scriptures, I want you to see that I believe biblical repentance means owning your sin before God, asking for forgiveness, and then living in a constant fight to turn to God instead of sin, okay? So let's get into our first text together. I'm going to be in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 12, if you have your Bibles. I hope that you do. If not, I bet we can get you one, and they've surely got them on your smartphone, okay? But 2 Samuel, chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, and we'll break some other things down as we go along the way, okay? The Bible says these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 12, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had a very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, and it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or the herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come. Then David's anger was so greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no Pity. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And as if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do to what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. But nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. The first thing we need to get at this morning is a little bit of the backstory that led to David's sin with Bathsheba, right? Um, back in chapter 11 of this same book in 2 Samuel Verse 1, the Bible says, In the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, if you're familiar with that particular story, you've likely heard someone say something like this before. David got in trouble with Bathsheba because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's what's often preached. I don't disagree with that. It's just I want to approach it from a slightly different angle. You see, I think David just got lazy. 
and complacent. And his wrong place, wrong time issue was actually, I think, very much intentional. This wasn't like, oh, he just made a, a bad choice or an accident and he was at the wrong place. No, this was, he, he made a really stupid decision here. This is really bad to not lead the group of men in charge of protecting the nation, okay? He'd experienced some major military victories by this point in his life, right? And I believe he might've been thinking in his mind, David, and we've all done this, right? Have you had this moment in your life where you're like, man, I've almost got it made. I'm living the dream. And you know what he did? Here's what I, I really feel that this is David's problem. I think David took his hand off the wheel of his life and just went on cruise control. He thought that what he did didn't matter. And even though as the king he was charged with protecting the nation, I think he thought, well, God's with me, so it's all just going to work itself out. I can kind of ease up on the amount of effort that I'm putting out into this. And you see, men, I believe that should hit us with a powerful truth about sin, the state of our families, the state of the individual churches that we attend in our nation as a whole. Can I tell you something that the Lord has hammered me on even now? is that men are most often tempted when things are good. That's when you find us getting complacent. That's when you find our swords getting dull. And it's also typically the first chain in a link of chains that goes something like this. Good times create weak men, weak men create hard times, and hard times create strong men. When Christian men get comfortable and complacent, there is a real price to be paid. Families will suffer. Children will fail to understand. I'm just speaking like what the Lord put on me, okay? They will fail to understand the important thing that is biblical masculinity. How do you, how do you why, why is that on my mind? Well, here's why. Because I believe that when, when young people are not exposed to biblical definitions of masculinity, what that's going to push them towards is really two things. It's either going to be same-sex attraction or promiscuity. I'm convinced of that. There's a whole myriad of other problems that happens, but that's at least two. And yet, if you trace them far enough, all of the sins of David, all the sins of men abdicating their roles are all connected to spiritual apathy, to neglecting our roles as the spiritual tone setters of our home. All our weaknesses lead to a horrific mess. However, it rarely happens when things are or excuse me, it rarely happens, I don't think, as much when things are bad. Well, why? Well, because we have a tendency to stay prayed up when we're hurting, right? When our lives are stress, stressless and carefree, that's when we begin to behave like we are sovereign instead of God. That's what gets David into trouble. And the adultery and the murder that you see in David's story here in 2 Samuel 12, it's really not that different, men, from the histories on our phones or the way we treat our families. So to finally get to our text, chapter 12 opens with the Lord sending Nathan to confront David on his sin. And in verses, those first seven verses, Nathan tells David this story about this guy, right? That has, there are these two guys and one has a bunch of flocks and one's, he's so poor, he's only got like this one sheep, but it's like a family pet. And, and maybe you didn't grow up with a family pet, but I did and they are precious to you. I grew up deathly afraid of dogs until I realized that if I had to, I could like fight a dog off with my bare hands and then I was okay. By the way, I had no choice because I'm married to a veterinarian. So it was either like, this is gonna work out or you can stop being a coward. So I was like, okay, you know? Um, but I'm deathly afraid of dogs, or at least I was. Uh, but I, I know what it's like to have a pet and, and, and they're stupid because you talk to them and you treat them like people and they're not, but they worm your way into your heart and they're wonderful things, right? And so David, or Nathan tells David this story about this rich man steals this one guy's, this poor guy's precious lamb that was like a daughter to him, the text says, and he cooks it up and sacrifices it for this other guy, right? And when David hears the story in verses five and six, he freaks out, right? He gets so angry. He's like, as the Lord lives, that guy deserves death for killing that. I mean, he's just, you, you ever done that before? You've heard somebody sin and you're just like, get him! You know, that's what he deserves, and then you can't miss the weight of verses 7 and really verse 9. When Nathan, in all of his prophetic authority, turns to David, knowing that it could be the last thing he ever says, by the way. You don't just go up to the king and are like, hey, let me tell you all the ways you're screwing up. 
You know, that's a bad, if you want to live, that's not a good thing to do. But David, Nathan goes to David and says, you're the guy that did this. You did this exact same thing when you had Uriah killed for Bathsheba. And do you see what happened, men? When he sinned against God, in the moment of the sin and in maybe the afterglow of their moment together, David thought, no one's going to know. And then Numbers 32, 23 came to pass in his life, which says, but if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Nathan had the guts to obey God and to confront David. But what we need to consider is kind of what happens next in this story, right? Because of David's sin, Nathan explains his consequences in verses 10 through 12 that we read. Nathan says that the sword would never depart from David's house, meaning that his kids would fight each other. Not only would his kids fight each other, if you're familiar with your history of the Old Testament, one of his sons goes so far, Absalom, as to rebel against him. David has to flee Jerusalem, and Absalom is, is the one that comes in and kind of usurps the throne for a little bit, right? And the whole prophecy about laying with his wives, his own son is the one that lays with his concubines in the eyes of Israel. It's terrible. He even tells David, I want you to sit with this for a minute, men. He tells David that the child that he's having with Bathsheba is going to die. It's a horrific consequence. But even as bad as that is, I want you to dial in with me in verse 13 because David drops some serious truth in his response. He says in verse 13, the Bible says this, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. If you're a right in your Bible sort of guy, you ought to highlight that, you ought to circle it, you ought to underline it, you ought to marinate on, I have sinned against the Lord. Because it's right here where I think we should camp out. Most men, when confronted with the reality of their sins, they do two actions. First, they try to make excuses. I didn't know the sponge was supposed to be wet. And two, they run from accountability. Not David. Praise God, not David. He says, and get this, I have sinned against the Lord. What an admission of guilt. And brothers, you and I had better recognize, so have we all. We have all sinned against the Lord. And in the Psalm of David that looks back on this particular event, Psalm 51, David makes this same emphasis in verse 4 of that Psalm when he says to the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Do you see what David, I think, is telling us today? Sin is an affront to the holy God of the universe. And because we so rebelliously act against God, we deserve death, all of our sin. Whether it's against another person or just, listen, you ever, maybe, maybe no one else has this. Do you ever just have a, a passing ungodly thought go through your mind? And you're like, where, in the, where did this come from? Like, why is that simple thought crossing my mind now when I'm driving into work, Right? All of those sins, even just the little lies that we tell, all of it deserves death. All of it offends a holy God. John Piper, he explains this when he says this. He's reflecting on this passage. He says, this doesn't mean that Bathsheba and Uriah and the baby weren't hurt. It means that what makes sin to be sin is that it is against God. Hurting man is bad. It is horribly bad. But that's not the horror of sin. Sin is an attack on God. A belittling of God. And friends, i got to tell you this morning, man, I feel I'm very unqualified to stand before you and preach this sermon because it's hammered me. If you want to know where where I'm at, this is what I'm getting ready to talk about, where I struggle. But think about this. When we react in sinful anger to our families, when we lust, when we make our decisions based on greed, when we choose anything other than God's best, we are actually maligning him and attacking God himself. The God that I say I know sent his son to die for me. I attack him. 
And David, at least here in 2 Samuel 12 and in Psalm 51, he acknowledges that that's what sin is. He says, I've sinned against you. And when we're thinking about stringless repentance, about dropping the excuse type of repentance, this is step number one. He owns that his sin is against God before it's against anybody else. But then secondly, the thing that I appreciate about David is he doesn't start making excuses. You'll notice he makes no justifications. He doesn't have Nathan killed, though he, all he had to do was say, hey, Joab, take this dude out. He leans into accountability. He asks for forgiveness and mercy all over Psalm 51. If you've never read Psalm 51, if you're having a down day, just go read Psalm 51 and realize how much God loves you, okay? Now, men, how many of us can honestly say that when we've been brutally confronted on the nature of our sin, that we drop the excuses and immediately ask God for forgiveness? Who's willing to say, I've got that on lockdown? I wish I could stand up here and tell you that, but it's just not true. No. We have a tendency to try and rationalize what we've done. It's just a little money, and the company won't miss it. My wife's making me miserable. She makes me feel so good. My kids are driving me nuts. Work has been so stressful. So I just want to go to the golf course and unplug for a little bit. Let my wife deal with them as a way to de-stress. For you younger men, my parents don't need to know what I've done. After all, it's not really hurting anyone. What a lie from the pits of hell. I'll tell you one that I struggle with, personally. I've struggled with it here lately. I can't believe that person said that. Who do they think they are? Do they not know all the things I've done? No, I'm not going to go and apologize to them because if I really had to do that, then I'd have to admit that I might be wrong. These are the lies that we tell ourselves to justify the actions that we know displease God. And men, if we want to see our families protected from the influence of sin, if we want to be more equipped, which I think what, that's what the Awakening Conference is about, right? then we need to drop the excuse-making when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Have you ever had that happen? Preachers, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but I had it happen to me recently for the first time that I've ever had something this bad happen. I was at odds with a congregation member, and I could not get into the pulpit until I talked to him and asked for his forgiveness. And it was hard. I didn't want to. I'll be honest with you, I didn't want to. But I just knew, how can I stand before a holy God and before the congregation and say, thus saith the Lord, if I in my heart am sinning against this brother? So I had to stop making excuses and go and make that right. But there's another step in repentance that we, I want to kind of highlight here. If you actually want to turn to Psalm 51, go there with me in your Bibles, because Psalm 51 is where David's reflecting on this event, and I kind of want to po point out what I think are two parts in the next step of biblical repentance. Um, first here, if there's a man in here today, I want to, I want to tell you this, because all of you men are men, Right? If you've come here today and you think that you're going to come to this conference and the preachers are going to get up here and give you some biblical advice and then all of a sudden you're going to go back home and everything's going to be better, I just want to tell you now, that's not how faith works. Um, if you went home today from the Awakening Conference and you're like, you know what, I'm going to strive to be like the best husband that you know, Seymour or South Knoxville or wherever you're from could ever want to be. I'm going to go do that. I'm going to be the best dad. I'm going to be the best church member, best friend, best employee. If you do that in your own strength, you will fail. Why? Because we are designed to be utterly dependent on God. On my own, I got to tell you, men, that on my own, my heart is exceedingly wicked and I want the wrong things, things that don't honor the Lord. And the truth is, we all are that way. We all mess up more than we'd care to admit. And in Psalm 51, believe it or not, David knows this. So look in Psalm 51 at verse 10, because this is beautiful, because he says these words to us, and I think to all of God's people. Verse 10 of Psalm 51, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, 
and renew a right spirit within me. You see, man, I, I, I'm here to tell you this morning that even after you're saved, believe it or not, you still need to have heart change going on. Repentance is not just a change of outward behavior, though you can be fooled by that. But a new king has to take up residence in your hearts, a king that will reshape your desires and your affections, right? Now, even though we all still war against the flesh, we, have, we will have the desire to please God more than we will have the desire to gratify our sinful flesh because Christ can give us a new heart that wants his will instead of our own. If you have him, if you've really repented, he enables us to stop saying things like this. Well, I want to change, but then we go home and everything's still the same, right? So here's my point. Biblical repentance in this step is more than saying, I'm sorry, directed to God in prayer and then living however we want. Repentance is a disciplined action of a redeemed and cleansed heart. It's an action that God enables in us, and yet we have to work at it. This is one of those divine mysteries that I don't fully comprehend, right? Well, what do you mean, Kirby? Because we don't work for our salvation. You're exactly right. We don't work for our salvation. But God has given us a job that relates strongly to our repentance, and it is this. I believe that the Word of God teaches that biblical men will be sin killers in their own lives. I guess I'm a Puritan like that. Maybe a little John Owen there, okay? But look at verses 7 through 9 of Psalm 51. David says there, he's, he's asking for cleansing, right? Purge me with hyssop, which if you know anything about that plant, is used in a lot of Old Testament sacrificial things. It's what was sprinkled, used to sprinkle blood. Um, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Listen to this. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. What is, what is David asking for here? Have you, have you really thought about that? Like, are, are you looking at this? Like, what is he asking for? He wants forgiveness. He wants to be purged from his sins. He wants to be made clean, but he knows that repentance, listen, it hurts because you have to let God search your heart and show you your own wickedness. And that is why he asks for joy and gladness. And even though God is having to do some serious breaking in his life, he still wants the Lord involved. You know why? Because there's no life apart from him. So then I have a question that's been burning on my heart to ask all of you as I was thinking about this conference, my failures as a man, my striving to repent, it's just something that I want to think on from Psalm 51. But are you ready today, right now, to invite God to break the bones of sin in your life so that he can blot out your iniquities? Think about that. If so, then I need to tell you it's going to hurt. Most things in life worth doing hurt. Burpees, which are God's abomination to me, hurt. Are they worth doing? Sure. Repentance is worth doing. If that's you, if you're ready to have God show you how to repent, to offer your heart unto him, then I need to tell you it's going to hurt, but we have to join him in this fight against sin. And I don't care if it's the Holy Spirit that reveals our sin, or if it's a man that knows us well enough, and we should all have that man in our lives that could hold us accountable, that can say, hey, listen, brother, I love you, but if you continue to travel down this trajectory, you're headed for a, a, a head-on collision with, with God. We have to respond to the Holy Spirit when he points out our sin. We have to dig it up. You gotta cut it out. I mean, I hate to say this, but I'll make it visual for you. You have to dig it up, cut it out, put it on the ground, pour gasoline on it, and set it on fire. We have to burn the trash that is almost hardwired inside of us. We have to gain the discipline to turn away from sin when everything in our nature is, listen, and it's, this is true, it's not as though sin isn't fun, right? 
There's everything in our nature that's saying, listen, come on. This is easier than facing the truth, right? This is gonna give you comfort. It's gonna make you feel good. It's gonna give you what you think you want. I'm only 39 years old, but I've, I've learned a lesson is that um, whatever sinner the devil promises you, you'll never get it. He never keeps his promise. He can't keep his promises. It can't deliver. So, we have to get drastic and seek the destruction of sin in our lives. And friends, that takes humility. It takes some spiritual sweat work, if I can use that analogy. However, can I ask you a question? What, what if, this is just hypothetical, okay? Let's just do a hypothetical together. Let's have a moment of collective imagination and say, what if we were just to outright reject that idea? What if we just said, you know what? I've come to the Awakening Conference and I don't give two rips about sin or repentance. It's possible, right? What happens if we just say no? What happens if we just sweep sin under the rug? What happens if we just try to ignore it? What happens if we kind of pull a little bit of a David and we say, you know what? I'm just not gonna be that intentional about my role in the home. I'm not going to be that intentional about seeking my own discipleship if I'm single. I'm not going to be that intentional about stewarding my girlfriend, my fiance, my wife, or my children into greater righteousness. I'm just going to let go of those things. What might happen? Well, I'm happy to tell you that the Bible does address that. And I'm not going to apologize, men, for telling you that what we're getting ready to look at next is extremely graphic. But I believe it illustrates the issue with sweeping sin under the rug and falsifying repentance. Turn with me one more time in your Bibles to Judges chapter 19. Judges chapter 19. If you're not familiar with the story of Judges, of this book, if you will, let me summarize it for you. It's a toilet bowl of a story. And by that I mean this. The story of Judges opens with the death of Joshua. Imagine like the manliest man you've ever met. He's like that guy that's the winner of season one of uh, the show Alone. He's just bearded, masculine, manly dude, right? I mean, the dude knows poetry that is hilarious, but he can also survive off of shells. And so, I mean, just Joshua's hardcore, but I mean, look who brought him up, right? I mean, he grew up under the tutelage of Moses, okay? Right, so the story of Judges opens with the death of Joshua, that great conqueror, right, that great successor. And to be frank, the story starts on that dark tone, right? And it pretty much gets progressively worse the entire book. It's one of those things that when I preached through this book at Mount Olive, I was like, sometimes I would honestly feel a little guilty. I'd be like, can we just get like a little something uplifting? I need like a psalm or something. Give me, give me something, you know? Go back to Genesis 1-1, something positive, right? Um. But to be frank, the whole story starts pretty dark and it just gets worse. Israel attempts to fulfill God's mandate to conquer all of Canaan, right? Under Joshua and then going into the time of Judges. But they do not conquer every area and the people they were supposed to conquer. They didn't put everybody to death that they were supposed to put to death. And I'm sure they probably thought, look, what's the big deal, guys? I mean, it's just a little failure. We still got all this land. Um, we conquered the majority of what God told us to do. And they may not have said it, but I bet they thought, hey, listen, you know, we wouldn't say this out loud theologically because we know it's probably not slightly right, but it's still basically true that Yahweh is pleased with majority obedience instead of total obedience. And yet as the story goes, they begin worshiping the gods of the people that they let live, and then God punishes them for their actions, right? Then they at least say they repent or like, God, save us. And then he raises up a judge and the judge kind of takes them out of this captivity that they're in. And then when they're out of captivity, what happens when men are in a good place? Then they start sinning again and they go back into captivity and it gets worse and it's worse and worse. In fact, if you really want to look at a textbook case of the failure of male leadership of an entire nation or of a spiritual body, just look at the book of Judges. You hit rock bottom when you hit, in my opinion, Judges chapter 19. Levite and his concubine are traveling. We don't really know why. Which, by the way, did you hear what I said? A Levite and his concubine. That's already a problem. Levite and his concubine are traveling. They're on a journey, and they have this contemplation. They're like, you know, we're, we're going through this, this area of Gentiles. Why don't we just stop right here and spend the night? And the Levite is smart enough to say, you know what? 
it's quite a common practice that if you're not local to an area, they might abuse us if we stop. So I know what we'll do. Let's keep going to this town called Gebeah because Gebeah is owned, kind of run by the Benjaminites. That's our Israelite brothers. We'll be safe there. And as they get into Gebeah, they meet this old man coming out of the fields. It's, I think it's, it's starting to get to be dusk, you know, so it's time to go in for the night because there's no major light source in antiquity, right? So it's a safety issue. So it's time to come in. And, and they said, you know what? We can just spend the night in the square. But the old guy's like, no, listen, y'all don't spend the night in the square. That's a really bad, come to my house and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll hook you up. We'll have dinner. We'll chat a little bit. You'll be safe. But whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. And so they agreed to spend the night in his house. So I want us to read a few verses together. Will you take up your copy of God's Word? Now I've got to find Judges as well. Get into Judges 19. Let's read verses, oh, 22 through 30. The Bible says, As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Yes, it means it. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Men, this ought to catch your attention right here. Verse 24, behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine, let me bring them out now, violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night long until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And the master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and he went out to go in his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let's be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, speak. Now these verses, in their context, show us that there is a major problem occurring in men in Israel at this time. And I have two questions. Why? Why does the old man offer his daughter and the Levite's concubine to this crowd of degenerates? Why does the Levite leave her to this mob? By the way, the text doesn't say it. There's a little bit of an ambiguity in the Hebrew, but I interpret it as the Levite is the one that pushes his concubine out there not the old man. But why does he do that? When I preached on this text at Mount Oliver, I spoke to some of our guys. I talked with Tanner, my next generation pastor, and we were chatting this up. And I'm sure every man in the room kind of feels the same way I did. When, when I look at these sort of situations, I get kind of pumped up. And David was reminding me, I kind of yelled in my sermon when I did this. But when, when I was talking about this, I kind of had the attitude of not on my watch. Like, I'm going to die in a pile full of brass with my knife sticking in another brother before this happens to my family. They might get me in the end, but I'm determined to take six to ten of those guys with me. That's why I go to F3, by the way. One of the reasons I go is because I want to try to be able to be somewhat ready to protect somebody if I need to. Do you feel that way, man? Are you going to let that sort of thing happen on your watch? However, I've got to be honest with you, I, I, I feel the same way you do. I don't want to let that sort of thing happen. But these men and judges, they're living in a world where God is a vague concept. There's all these confusing messages about which God is the right God. It's, and the idea of choosing Yahweh, that's just another opinion among many, right? Accountability has long since gone. And if you read the book of Judges, 
I'm not even sure that many of the men of that time knew that they should repent. We get no indication that either the man, the old man mentioned here, or the Levite are particularly faithful servants of God. And so what we're witnessing here is the case of reaping what has been sown spiritually. These were weak men ruled by fear. Neither of them seems to cry out to God in their moment of distress. But let's get back to why. The answer, I believe, is an issue of identity. When men are not grounded in God, when their definition of masculinity doesn't come from the God that created them, they will fail at their roles of being protectors and providers. Now we should look at those men, and I, I do, I get really angry about this because I have people in my church that have suffered greatly. I have children in my church, and you do too, that had suffered greatly at the hands of unrighteous men. So I get fired up, and we should be about these two men's cowardice but what I want to ask today is how do we prevent the men of this awakening conference from making the same choices that the old man and the Levite make? And again, I know you're thinking, I would never do anything even remotely like that. I would never sacrifice that which is most precious to me to a crowd of depraved men. And I want you to look at me when I tell you this, and I want you to sit with the weight of it for a minute. But most of us have already done that. We've made a choice like this if we failed to offer real repentance to God. Because if you think about it, if you've got children in your home or if, you're, if there's anybody that's, that you're wanting to influence, I don't care if you're single, married, a, a widow or a widower, it doesn't matter. Like if you're trying to influence people for good, then your relationship with God is it's projecting a message, right? And if we fail to repent, then we have failed at some point to steward our wives and our children the way that we should. And if you don't believe me, then how come so many men are willing to admit that they need to do a better job at leading their families, but it seems like no one wants to put in the work. No one wants to change. And I'm talking, hear me, I'm talking to the oldest man in the room and the youngest man in training in the room, okay? Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, we are in a fight. And I get really ticked off when I hear people like getting upset. I read a, I guess it was a liberal book a long time ago that, that at the time I was in college and it really resonated with me and he was like yeah I don't like war analogies in the bible but that's what we're in okay like if you want to acknowledge it or not it doesn't matter but we're in a fight and the world the devil and his demons want nothing greater than to destroy our families because if he can tear up our families and if he can tear down men then he can tear down churches and every time we let our personal preferences be careful of those men our hobbies our messed up priorities or our laziness lead us to keep our families out of worship and away from the church body. Every time our lack of repentance leads them to faith, to believe that faith in Christ is a joke, we are surrendering them to the abusive crowd of the world. I don't know if it's Vody Bauckham that says it, I think it is, but you give them over to the world, why are you surprised when they act like Caesar, Right? How do I know that this happens, that, that we surrender our families to the world? Because even pastors can do it. We can check out, just like the rest of men in today's culture, Dr. Tony Evans, I love the way he preaches. My dad was a big fan of him. I'm missing him right now. I wish he could be here for this conference. Um, but he's at a better conference in heaven. So, um, Dr. Tony Evans, he's noticed this failure of men in our culture today. In one of his recent books, he says this. He said, it's hard to man up if you can't even stand up. And it seems that we live in a culture of men who can't even stand up right now. They may not be physically lame, but that's not the only kind of lameness. There's mental lameness. When the man does not have the cognitive and emotional capacity to take on his manly responsibilities. There's also social lameness. Get this one. This is when men expect the government to do for them what God has called them to do in providing for themselves and their families. There exists a plethora of spiritual lameness as well. When men no longer lead devotions, pray with their families, or seek out spiritual answers, but instead they sit, soak, and sour in front of sports or video games in their flex time. What a word. I don't want that for us, men. 
I don't want to stand down and stand by and let the world disciple my family. But I've done it. The question is then, what am I or what are you, what are we willing to do about it? Can I tell you that the drop your kids off at church mentality for any parent will not work out in the long run? Did you know that? Here's why. Because the example we are setting is that the church is basically fine for kids and it's fine for youth, but when you get older and more mature, then it's not all that important. How backwards is that? And let's not even, I'm going to step on a toe. Let's not even try to blame our wives for that one, right? Who does the buck stop with in your home, right? Every time before we had kids that Libby and I were not in church with the exception of maybe a few handful of cases, the responsibility of prioritizing the worship of a holy God falls on me and I mess that up. Don't make my mistake. Now we need to slow down and ask one more question. I know I'm probably getting short on time. But here's the question. Is there any hope for us men? Like the Holy Spirit's taking me to the woodshed on this. Is there any, any hope? Because I don't want y'all to think I'm going to stand up here and rake myself and every other man that's come to this conference over the coals for failing to lead and failing to repent and just leave that there. Just let, to say, hey, we all suck. <laughs> You know, there is hope. And he is the most manly man we could ever imitate. If the cost of not repenting is our souls and the souls in our care, then we should obey Jesus today and offer God real, broken, excuse-dropping repentance. Let's choose to act like David and admit that we've sinned against God. And whatever we do, let's not behave like the men in the time of judges, right? That don't even know what they're doing is wrong. They sin that much. And the truth is, a great deal of being a man in today's world, it's like a scene from We Were Soldiers. I told y'all I was a movie fan. Sam, I, I, it's still the same, man. I can't get away from movies, okay? It's like a scene from We Were Soldiers, one of my favorite movies that I reference in probably every other sermon at Mount Olive, okay? So if you're not a member, now you know pretty much what my sermons are like. But in the first real battle that happens in the... I think it's the La Drang or the Ya Drang Valley in Vietnam. The 7th Air Cav is landing, right? And they, they hit the ground, and they're, they're starting to shoot. And nothing's happening for a minute. And all of a sudden, this one guy sees this one enemy soldier get up and run. And his whole platoon follows him, right? His whole platoon follows him, and they kind of they get tunnel vision. You all know what tunnel vision is? Kind of where you're focused on one thing, one thing only, and that's always dangerous. It doesn't matter what stage of life, if it's secular or spiritual that you're in. You get tunnel vision on one thing, it's dangerous because you don't see what's going on around you. So this guy, this lieutenant, takes his whole platoon and they get chasing after this one guy and they get drawn into a fatal funnel, into a killing zone. It's an ambush, right? They get separated from the rest of their unit. They end up getting cut off and surrounded and the officer that led them into the trap, he gets shot and he dies. Several of them are wounded. And for days, they have to fight alone against the enemy to the point that they're covering themselves in dirt. They're hiding underneath bodies to try to survive. And at times, if you watch the film, the fighting was so close that it was like hand to hand, like get your bayonet and, and stick somebody. And eventually, because of the actions of Sergeant Savage, the men survived. But I want to tell you something, men. The fight that we are in is just as real as the fight that they were in. And I don't mean to downplay, if we have combat veterans here, the things that you've gone through. It's horrific. I don't even want to imagine it. But the spiritual fight we are in is just as real. And listen, the enemy is so close to all of us because most of the time, the enemy is ourselves and our sin. I was going to tell you, so that means that our options are. But if you call yourself a Christ follower and a man, then you don't really have an option here. We must repent and believe. Or you can, I suppose, choose to fake it and live the consequences, but trust me, you don't want to do that. I know that I think someone is going to come and lead in worship in just a second. But let me encourage you, man, because I'm, I'm pretty much done, not to leave your seats, 
not to fall asleep for this part. Until we've come before a holy God and laid bare our hearts before him, will you ask him to change you today and to give you the gift of repentance and the ability, listen, the wonderful ability to do it quickly? Will you pray with me? God of our fathers, we thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to come and to sit under the weight of your word. And Lord, we must start by acknowledging that we are not the men that you have called us to be. We are not the fathers that you've called us to be. We are not the husbands that you've called us to be. We're not the best church members. We're not the best employees or the best friends. But God, knowing that we can acknowledge that, seeing from your word that we are sinful, now we have the opportunity, God, to lay that at your feet and say, God, we are more than sorry. We are mortified for the things that we've done that have sinned against you. And we ask, like David, for you to create a clean heart in us again. And we know that you can do that because you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And you, he took, God, he took all of our sins upon himself. And he gave us his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness, so that we could have access to you, so that we could become the righteousness of God. And Lord, as I preach this text this morning, and I think about the godly men in my life that I want to pattern myself after, I know I'm not there yet. Maybe that's most of us in this room. We realize that we've not arrived at where we want to be, but God, would you help us to take the stupid crap that we do and put it at your feet today, to turn our backs on it, to say no more, to say, I'm not going to sacrifice my family for this junk anymore. I'm not going to sacrifice my relationship to you for this junk anymore. God, I'm so thankful for these men, that they would take the time to do this, that they would put up with someone like me. I'm so thankful for the good preaching we're going to hear in just a few minutes. But for right now, we just ask you to forgive us and cleanse us. And make us into better image bearers for your glory. God, I'm thankful for this time and this place. Your Holy Spirit is with us always. Speak now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.